Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. My guest is Susan Page, the Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today and author of a new biography of Pelosi called Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Page had 10 sit-down interviews with Pelosi, and she explains the forces that shaped her from her childhood in Baltimore, to her days as a Democratic fundraiser in San Francisco, to her ascension as speaker. She has a ton of great insights and analysis, including how long she thinks Pelosi will remain in office. And now, here's my conversation with Susan Page. Susan Page, from your son's former bedroom in Washington, D.C., to my daughter's former bedroom in Oakland, California, welcome to It's All Political. So there's kind of a symmetry to our, our coronavirus locations. <laughs> there is, there is. Um, I, I got to say, I, I really enjoyed this book. It's got a lot of great details on what shaped Nancy Pelosi from her family's roots in Italy, which I, uh, I loved it for another, on a leather level, to her childhood in Baltimore as the daughter of Tommy D'Alessandro, a Marin congressman for that city. And uh, as, as we say in the business, this isn't just a clip job. You had 10 sit-down interviews with Pelosi over the last few years. I'm very jealous of that. Uh, but before we get started, I want to talk to you. <clears throat> I want to get your take on, on something sort of uh, something significant that's going to be happening this week. Uh, when President Biden addresses Congress, we will see a first. We will see two women sitting on the dais behind him, two Californians, and the chairs uh, reserved for the vice president and the House Speaker, Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi, with your historian's hat on. Put that moment in context for us. Well, I think it's, I think it's pretty meaningful. I mean, you think about it, in 2007, until 2007, no woman had ever been up there on that podium for that occasion. And then Nancy Pelosi seated up there. And George W. Bush, with whom she had not very good relations, came as president and made a point of acknowledging the history of that occasion. Uh, that, was a, that was a happy moment for Nancy Pelosi and for a lot of Americans, for a lot of women in America and girls uh, who had never seen a woman in a position of such power before. You know, you in San Francisco, I know you're very accustomed to Nancy Pelosi. She's your local member of Congress. Maybe it's easy to forget how important she is, how powerful she is. She is the most powerful woman in the history of the American government, which is something that is really quite remarkable. And sitting next to, to Kamala Harris, a woman of color, first time we'd have a woman of color behind uh, behind the president uh, as well. Could this be one of the last times we see this? Uh, and only for this reason, uh, as part of a deal Pelosi cut the, the other day, or the other day, two years ago, or three years ago now in 2018, she said she wouldn't run for another term as speaker beyond this year, but the wording there was very kind of opaque and fungible. Do you think that she will run again after this term and... And uh, if, if she does, is there any way, any way she stays in Congress without being the, the queso grande, as we say? So I don't know the answer to your question, but I'll tell you what I think. I think this is her last term. I think this is her valedictory term. Uh, I think she feels she had ind she has indicated, as you say, she doesn't exactly make a Sherman-esque statement about it. <laughs> no. Uh, but she indicates, she indicated uh, when she was elected this time around that she remembered and would abide by the commitment she made in 2018. And the fact is, I think Democrats in the House are ready to move to a new generation of leadership. There are three leaders at the top of the House Democrats. All of them are in their 80s. 
Mm. Uh, all of yes. them have been in power for quite some time. Uh, so I think that will be a moment. She'll, I, she's working hard to get Joe Biden's big legislative agenda through the House. Uh, but at, at that time, it, I would be surprised if she ran again. All right. I want to zero in on just a, a few key moments in the book. There's so many. Um, what, first, one of the ultimate compliments in Pelosi's world is to be, quote, operational. Uh, to get stuff done. And her training in that came when she was a little girl living in Baltimore's Little Italy, when her dad was in Congress. You write that, quote, Nancy D'Alessandro's childhood was a masterclass in politics, not the philosophical, but the practical. You wrote that, quote, working on the favor file, little Nancy learned how to listen, to understand not only what someone said, but what they meant. And um, explain to us what the favor file is, and how she gained a lot of her political know-how, not just from her dad, but from her mom, Annunziata, big Nancy Pelosi. So, Joe, first I have to ask you a question. Do you think that most of Nancy Pelosi's constituents in San Francisco know that her father was this larger-than-life mayor of Baltimore? No, no. They know. They may know that she, her dad was um, the mayor of Baltimore, um, but I think even as you point out in the book, a lot of people didn't know that when she came out here because her name was Pelosi. It wasn't D'Alessandro. That was, you know, oh, Jesus, 70 years ago at this point now. So it's yeah, lost on a generation. And yet when she was born, the D'Alessandros of Baltimore were like the Kennedys of Boston. Mm. When she was born, her picture as a newborn ran in the Baltimore newspapers. For one thing, she was the first girl after six boys had been born in her family. Uh, so that was considered very newsworthy, but also her whole childhood. She would be the adorable sidekick to her father as he went and did events. They named things after her, boats and airplanes and stuff. Uh, so she, she has quite, there's this, there was this portrait that the family had painted to mark Tommy the Elder D'Alessandro's first election as mayor, an oil portrait of the whole family. At the center of it is Na little Nancy dressed all in white. Everyone else is dressed in dark formal clothes. It looks like she's the one who's being sworn in as mayor, <laughs> not her dad. So she has this remarkable childhood that really taught her a lot about how politics work and how you make politics work. So to the favor file, the favor file is exactly what it sounds like, which is constituents would line up outside the D'Alessandro house they would come in and sit down across a table from big Nancy D'Alessandro. Often little Nancy sat next to her mother and took notes. They would need, people would need something done. They would have, they would have a housing problem that they needed fixed, or they would have a son in jail. What could they do about that? Or they would have an immigration issue that they would want uh, Tommy the Elder to address. And big Nancy would write this down on a card, deal with the favor, expect the person to then show up on election day and vote for Tommy the Elder. And down the road, when someone else came for a favor that that person might be able to help, they would be expected to help out on that. So it is the essence of politics. The favor file is politics 101. Oh, it was, it was some, some great detail there of her childhood uh, and, uh, and, and even some her background in Italy that I, I encourage people to, to take some time with. Uh, we're going to fast forward to when she married uh, Paul Pelosi, uh, who was a, a finance guy, early finance guy in Silicon Valley. And they moved to San Francisco. She became a prominent fundraiser in California. She also had five children. Uh, she became chair of the California Democratic Party. And then she ran for national chair of the, you know, of the DNC. And she lost. And afterwards, she blamed it uh, to, on sexism uh, to some extent. 
there was a whispering camp campaign, not perhaps not so whispering, coming from organized labor that referred to her as, quote, an airhead and a, quote, female airhead. You wrote that she learned more from that loss, her only loss in politics, than anything else. Why, why was that so seminal to Nancy Pelosi? Well, she told me she learned more from that loss than she learned from mm -hmm. any other experience in elective politics. And it was because you, she, her view was you can't, even if you deliver for people, you can't count on them to turn around and automatically support you. And this is perhaps the fundamental lesson from her father. It goes like this. Nobody's going to give you power. You have to seize it. That is something her father did. Her father challenged a long-term Democratic incumbent in a primary for the nomination for the congressional seat that he held in Baltimore. Nancy Pelosi, you know, when she got to Washington and decided she wanted to be in the leadership, she launched what amounted to an upstart campaign, an insurgent campaign, uh, to get into the leadership to become Democratic whip of the House. And when when, when political hopefuls come and talk to Nancy Pelosi, even today, this is advice several of them told me she gave them. Nobody's going to hand it to you. You have to go out and fight for it. Was that also the origin of her one of her famous aphorisms, don't agonize, organize? When I, I got to say, that's my favorite one. I always say. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and you don't have to be around Nancy Pelosi very long before she'll say that, because that is a kind of a fun, uh, that's a, if the, the, the law of Nancy Pelosi, don't agonize, organize would be one of those laws. We will have more of my conversation with Susan Page after this short break. And now, back to our conversation about Nancy Pelosi with Susan Page. She ran for Congress here in uh, 1987, San Francisco, to replace Sala Burton, who was the wife of uh, longtime Congressman Phil Burton. Crazy 14-person primary, uh, which we're used to at some extent, some uh, local races in San Francisco. Her opponents ripped her then as a rich woman, a dilettante. And there was one debate that she that she deigned to participate in at KQED here. <clears throat> one of her opponents, a single mother, said, quote, she's never had to meet a payroll. She never had to worry about childcare. She never had a kid in the public schools. She's never worried about the things that most people of San Francisco have. Pelosi's response, I don't think you have to be a sick, I don't think you have to be sick to be a doctor or poor to understand the poor. You describe that as, quote, the essential exchange of the campaign and perhaps of her political career. Why was that? Because she won that primary, not by very much, over Harry Britt, who was uh, many, the candidate many people thought was going was gonna to win it. That got her into the general election against a Republican candidate who had not a, not a ghost of a chance of defeating her. Uh, you know, t t she, she had some hurdles to overcome. Uh, in, in that first congressional race. And one of it was, was she serious? Did she understand the problems that people really had? Uh, she, could she, could she, could they voters count on her? And one thing that was interesting in looking at that first and crucial special election in 1987 was the way Harry Britt carried the heavily Democratic precincts. Nancy Pelosi got over the finish line due in part to support that she solicited and got from some of the Republican precincts, where she sent out a campaign flyer saying, in essence, you know a Democrat's going to win this election. Why don't you get the Dem like the Democrat you like better or maybe dislike less? And that was helpful to her in that. I think that, that I believe that was the last close campaign she ever had 
in San Francisco. And uh, that was also the last debate she ever engaged in. <laughs> 33 years, she's never, never debated yet. We, I, I tried to goad her into it last time. Uh, zero. They don't even respond. They're like, who, who care? Who, what, what I need to debate for? Um, <clears throat> you cover uh, Pelosi's campaign, as you alluded to a couple minutes ago, to be in Democratic leadership. It was over uh, three years, uh, very well in the book, the rise to speaker. One of her superpowers is her ability to keep the caucus together. And there's some great anecdotes in the book about how she does it. She's not a, a yeller. Instead, she appeals to members in different ways, sort of in the favor file way. Uh, in your book, uh, Harry Reid told a story about how she wouldn't put a member on a committee who voted against her opponent in the leadership race years earlier. Uh, but her masterclass was during the Affordable Care Act. She told one Democrat who was balking, I got you elected and you won't do this. Tell the story about Congressman John Bocieri, who was uh, elected in a swing district in Ohio, and the poor man had uh, had to talk to Pelosi about this. What what happened to this guy? So, so Pelosi calls him to meet with her. He arrives with his chief of staff. His chief of staff is barred at the door. It's just going to be this junior member of Congress and uh, the Speaker of the House to talk about his vote. And um, here's so there's. I think I think there was a I think there was some pressure that he felt, uh, but she also had an ability to recognize what motivates members of Congress, how you can persuade them to do something that perhaps is not in their political best interest. This was not in his political best interest to vote for the Affordable Care Act. It wasn't a good fit in some ways with his district. Uh, she 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 said that there are, sometimes there are basically causes bigger than ourselves. And this guy was a veteran who had fought in war for the for America. And he said, when I interviewed him, he said that that he that made sense to him. Yes, that was true. He voted for it, and he lost re-election. And he was good with that decision. He was he was okay yes. with it. I, I interviewed him for the book, and he was at peace with it. He never got ran for office again. He had thought about it occasionally. Uh, you know, that's uh, then of course that earns. Nancy Pelosi's great respect. Nancy Pelosi has not much respect for members who were from safe districts and who were giving her trouble about voting for it. And believe me, then she would show what John Bresnahan of formerly a political would describe as her iron fist. He describes her as an iron fist in a Gucci glove. Yes, and that is just about the best description of Nancy Pelosi I've ever heard. What is but she doesn't she doesn't bully people or how does how does she how does she do that when she really has to get tough with somebody? So there was one there was one interview I had the ninth interview where I felt that I was getting the Pelosi treatment because I had asked her about something that she didn't think should be in the book and I thought she'd be in the book and she never raised her voice and she never threatened me but I felt sweat popping out on my forehead as I defended myself she asked increasingly pointed uh, questions, forcing me to explain and defend myself. And by the time I left her room, uh, I, I, you know, I hadn't relented. I did include it in the book, but I went home and had a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, join the club. One day at, the, at an editorial board meeting, she said, I had written uh, that day or maybe the day before, I'd written a critical column of her. And, and she said, she came in and it was kind of out of nowhere. She says, obviously, you don't know how Washington works. And so, and then she, she kept, I was like kind of the callback. She said, but we're not here to, to just criticize Joe. We're here to criticize Trump. And so she, somehow she made a, 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 a seamless transition there. The other day, Pelosi's campaign arm released an unbelievable stat. I'm sure you saw this. 
in the first quarter of the year, she raised $32 million for the Democrats, including $25 million for the DCCC. And during the first quarter of this year, according to her office, the speaker crossed the threshold of having raised $1 billion for Democrats uh, since entering the leadership in 2002. Uh, and, and her office always touts this as, as one of her the reasons she should remain in power and, and one of the one of her uh, uh, one of her uh, I hate to say superpower again but yes a lot of the fundraising power uh, so the cachet of the office you you have a lot of fundraising power but when you're the um, you can you can raise more because when you're the speaker or the majority leader but she's extraordinary about it what is it about her that makes her such a good fundraiser what makes people want to give her money. One billion dollars. One billion. It's, no, no one is even close. This has never happened. No. This is like extraordinary. And it's not the only reason she's in power, but it's always been helpful that she is such an effective fundraiser. Here's one thing is she's not embarrassed to ask for money. And maybe that's her uh, training from her parents as well. She doesn't think it's a terrible thing to ask for money. She's very committed to liberal causes. She thinks she's on the side of the angels, so why not ask rich people for money? <laughs> uh, California has been a great base for her, too, because oh, yes. you have, you know, you've got the Silicon Valley types that have more money than they can spend, and you got the Hollywood types, also fantastically wealthy, and she has developed relationships with some big money people across the country uh, that that are just that have just really paid off for Democrats. I mean, she even raised money from Donald Trump when he was a yes, Democrat. Yes, and he he did not let her forget that. Um, we we hear a lot about increased partisanship in in politics, which accelerated probably in the mid '90s, maybe a little bit before that. Pelosi's been in the national leadership of the Democratic Party for a long time. Ever since then, uh, you talk about in the book where how people from uh, John Boehner to George W. Bush talk about how she he, she leaned into her partisanship even when they were they say they were easing up a bit. She's gone for, she went for months without talking to either uh, W. Bush and Trump. How much responsibility does she have for the partisanship that paralyzes Washington often? So she's not responsible for it, but she hasn't done very much to ameliorate it. She's been comfortable negotiating in a world of hyperpartisanship. I mean, look how she describes her job. She says, I eat nails for breakfast and put on a suit of armor, right? This does not seem like a very bipartisan uh, garb. Um, I, so I don't think you can blame her, but you can, I guess you could fault her for not um, trying to do things to make things better. This was something that George W. Bush, when he uh, honored her, as we talked before, when he honored her the first time she was sitting up there for a State of the Union address, he took some grief from Republicans for doing that. And he kind of felt like Nancy Pelosi never responded. Uh, John Boehner told me the same thing, that uh, he would try to lower the degree, the temperature uh, of, of, not that they were going to agree with each other on things, but maybe they could talk about things in a slightly less inflamed way. He felt he never got a response. Even Barack Obama, uh, uh, two senior aides to Barack Obama told me that Obama would feel like Pelosi sometimes was hectoring him. And there's this picture Oval Office picture, White House photo of Nancy Pelosi standing next to Barack Obama, pointing her finger at him in a gesture that is familiar to all of us. Yes. And, and Obama has put his hand over her hand. And it's not entirely clear if he's trying to calm her down or trying to protect himself. Uh, you, you write about the financial meltdown of 2008 when almost overnight the financial markets were crashing. 
uh, you write that that was, quote, a case study in her strengths and weaknesses, end quote. She was able to win over Democrats who didn't like the deal because it was too friendly to Wall Street, and yet it, you write, quote, underscored her failure to forge friendly and functional relationships with Republicans, end quote. How has her weaknesses affected the functioning of Congress? Uh, like, you know, think about the tail end of the Trump presidency when she got a lot of heat, even from Ro Khanna, one of her, uh, someone in the California delegation here for, for not moving uh, another COVID relief bill. The, um, how, much, how much did that, her weaknesses affect the ability of Congress to function? So they, they've had some effect. Um, you know, the fact that she is a really fierce partisan, uh, that's, that's had an effect. On the other hand, it's not like the Republicans aren't fierce partisans too. True. So it's more like uh, who among them uh, is making an effort to make this situation different. And you can probably count the people doing that on one hand. Yeah. You're right. Congressman Jim Clyburn from South Carolina, top House Democrat, uh, told you that the difference between Pelosi's first and second term as speaker was, quote, night and day. What did what did he mean by that? This was so interesting because, of course, Jim Clyburn, also a groundbreaking political figure, uh, the highest ranking African-American in the history of Congress. He said that uh, when you're when you break a barrier like that, there are people who want you to succeed and there are people who want you to fail. And everything then is a test. But the second time around, the second time Pelosi was elected speaker, she had proven herself to anybody who was watching. And he felt that she then was free to act with, with much more confidence. There is a, uh, is a great chapter in the book. It's been excerpted uh, and it's been out there about uh, P- Pelosi and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the uh, now second term congresswoman from New York. And, uh, and the squad. Uh, AOC, she no doubt has major political skills and she has, a, and she's got to give her credit. She has a, got a, has a large role in getting the Green New Deal on the map and, uh, and part of it incorporated Biden's infrastructure plan. But does Pelosi get, does Pelosi think that she is, as she likes to say, operational? I think Pelosi does not think AOC is operational. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one interview I had with her, which happened to take place the afternoon of a big blow up with the squad uh, in, in the Democratic caucus, in a closed meeting of the Democratic caucus. So she came to this interview pretty wound up about the squad. And I I asked her about some, a phrase that she's used. I said, does the squad understand the difference between making a beautiful pate and making sausage? Because Pelosi has said that legislating is more like making the sausage than creating a beautiful pate. And she said that she thought that was right. She, she quoted Dave Obey, who was uh, a Wisconsin Paul yes. uh, and chairman of the Appropriations Committee in his day. And Obey had a phrase, he would say, some people come here to make holy pictures, to show, show how pure they are. And other people come here to legislate. And Pelosi is definitely one of the people who comes to Washington to legislate. And she was characterizing the squad as being members who come there to make holy pictures. Yeah. Yes. This is, it was a, is a, one of my favorite chapters in the book uh, out of many. Uh, <clears throat> finally, Pelosi says a couple of times in your book, I'm a very private person. I'm shy. And we both know, uh, you having just done 10 interviews with her, that she is a very uh, tough interviewer. She clings to the talking points like she's hanging off a cliff. 
Uh, even her husband, uh, Paul Pelosi, told you he didn't know how, you know, he didn't really have much. To, how did she, you ask him, how did she get through the last couple of years? It's difficult. She said, I don't really know. What were you able to talk a little bit about that? What were you able to get out of her that was personal, that, that we don't see very often, if at all? You know, the most animated Nancy Pelosi got in an interview with me was talking about her mom. Mm. Uh, she thinks her mom has never gotten enough credit. Her mom had all these ambitions that were squelched, some by the times and expectations of the day, some by her father, who did not want her mother to, for instance, realize her dream of going to law school. Uh, her her mother was just this big, I mean, her father was a larger than my figure. Her mother was too. And in fact, if you want to know why Nancy Pelosi is such a fierce partisan, when in 1984, uh, when Reagan was president, President Reagan was going to Baltimore to unveil a statue of Christopher Columbus near Little Italy, where the D'Alessandros lived. Tommy the Elder D'Alessandro was already out of office, but the White House called and said, would they like to be the president's guests at this big event in their neighborhood? And big Nancy D'Alessandro told the White House, after all the things that Ronald Reagan has done to poor people in this country, he better not come near us. <laughs> and the White House was so concerned that a White House aide then called their son, Tommy the Younger D'Alessandro, himself a former mayor, to ask if she actually posed a security threat to the president. Now that is a partisan. <laughs> okay. And you have some fabulous details about Big Nancy. Uh, she was she had she liked to go to the track, and, uh, and I have many Italian American relatives who were of that era spent a lot of male and female spent a lot of time at the track. Um, but she also was an inventor. You know, in addition to wanting to go to law school. Tell us a little bit about the beautiful vaporizer for treatment of skin uh, that you uh, that you uncovered. And uh, go ahead. She was an entrepreneur for sure. I found in the U U.S. Patent Archives the applications that Nancy D'Alessandro submitted for this aluminum tube with a coil at the bottom and a little hole at the top that would guarantee perfect youthful skin for women. And what you did is you would pour secret oils, which I think were mostly olive oil, in the base of this, heat it up, and then have it steam your face. And it was guaranteed to make you look years younger. Uh, and my son, one of my kids, um, last year went on eBay and actually found a Nancy D'Alessandro Beautified Vapor Machine for sale for $34, which he <laughs> bought for me for my birthday, and which when I plugged it in, it still worked. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and any results you'd like to report? Yes, I'm, well, obviously I'm beautiful, yeah, and beautiful I'm to a great extent now. So <laughs> yes, I actually can't vouch for whether it works in your skin, but I can tell you it still heats up and creates steam. <laughs> the book is called Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. I am going to give this book uh, for Mother's Day to a, a, a feisty Italian-American woman in my life, my mom, who another Italian-American who doesn't take any crap. Susan Page, thank you for being on It's All Political. It's good to see you. Oh, thank you, Joe. It's been fun. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Susan for being on the podcast today. I'd like to thank Karen Creighton for producing this episode. And a shout out for our great theme music. That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter if you're operational or you just like to pose for holy pictures, it's all political.